0: We are, yeah, we're finishing up our series today on the lo- on loving your neighbor. We're in Luke chapter 22 verses 7 through 20. I grew up in a little country church where we celebrated the Lord's Supper once a quarter, always at night. I don't know whose decision it was to only do it at, on, at in evening services, but that's the way we did it. My grandmother, my mom's mom, was the official baker of the Lord's Supper supper bread, and it was pie crust. So that was a highlight of my youth. But I can remember when I was growing up, every once a quarter, my mom would say to me, Oh, we've got to go to Sunday night church tonight because it's the Lord's Supper. We don't want to miss the Lord's Supper. And that was always odd for two reasons. Number one, it's not like I had a choice. You know, she said, Oh, we got to go. Well, we went anyway. We went every Sunday, so it's not like there was anything unusual. And secondly, I didn't understand why this was so exciting. Why, why is that something you don't want to miss? It just didn't, it didn't resonate with me. Sure, pie crust is tasty, but it was a little tiny square. And frankly, I could have gotten pie from my grandmother anytime I asked for it. So why was this such a big deal? And I, I know I was an adult before I understood the real meaning of the Lord's Supper. And that may be the case for you. In fact, I bet if you polled members of this church and other churches that preach scripture and, and call themselves Christians, I bet if you asked them, why do we celebrate the Lord's Supper? Why is it a big deal? Their answer would probably be, well, because Jesus told us to, which is not a bad answer. It's technically true, but we don't really get it. What was Jesus about? Why, why is this important? We're going to celebrate Lord's Supper at the end of this sermon. So if you're watching online, go real quickly and grab something out of your refrigerator or your pantry so you can take the Lord's Supper along with us. But why is this so important? As I said, we're finishing our series today on loving your neighbor in real life. Next week, assuming we're not all encased in ice, you know, or hunting woolly mammoth across the frozen tundra with our spears, you know, we're, we're, we're going to be here next Sunday, Lord willing, and we're going to start a series on the seven I am statements of Jesus in the gospel of John, seven times when Jesus used the divine name, I am, to say, I am the bread of life, I am the resurrection and the life, I am the light of the world, etc., and who he is and what he means to us today. But for now, we've been talking about the greatest command of all. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. We've talked about how if you are following Jesus, the the goal of the Christian life is not just to get you to heaven when you die. And it's not just to make you religious right now. It is to make you someone who genuinely and consistently loves other people, loves everyone who comes into your path. And none of us is good at that by nature. In order to get there, there are certain hurdles God has to bring us across. He has to teach us to die to ourselves. We have to just overcome this innate selfishness that we all carry within us. He, he has to confront the idols. In every one of our hearts, there, there are things that compete for our allegiance with God, and we have to put those in their proper place in order to become people who love others. He, he has to teach us to tap into the power of the Holy Spirit. We can't do it on our own. We need the Spirit of God to show us how and give us the power. And we need to be ready for perseverance. We need to stick with these people over the long haul, not expect instant fruit, instant gratification, but be willing to stick with them through good times and bad, waiting for those moments when they're ready, when they need the love of Christ. So today we're going to look at one last thing. We're going to talk about the reason Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. Not that taking this little bread and cup is going to make you holy. There's nothing magical about it. No, but the reason why Jesus told us to observe this ritual, this this moment in worship, is something that changes our hearts forever. So let's put ourselves back in old Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. As Jesus and His disciples on Passover evening got ready to gather for their observance of this ancient ritual, this ancient feast. And Jesus knew that within a few hours, he'd be arrested, he would be crucified. Now, if you were there and you didn't know the rest of the story, all you knew was this was Jesus' last night with these 12 men and you knew what their history was up until this point, their background, their training, or lack thereof, and their history and the way they'd behaved in the presence of Christ and in the presence of all the opportunities he would given them, what would be your guess as to what happens next after Jesus is gone? Really, there's four possibilities of what might happen. One, they might all just decide, okay, Jesus is gone. We've got nothing. Let's go back to our former lives. And so Peter goes back to fishing. In fact, we see that happen in John chapter 21. Matthew goes back to tax collecting if he can get his old job back and everybody just goes back to the way they were. Or a second possibility is in anger, they stir up a resistance of some kind and they go on a hunt trying to trying to create uh, incidents of of violence and insurrection, maybe go after the the Romans or the Sanhedrin, those who who had conspired to kill Jesus. You know, there was one of the 12 named Simon the Zealot. I bet he would have been in favor of that option. Or a third possibility is that they would fracture into separate groups and start their own movements. Peter and Andrew would have been a natural team. John and James would have as well. Philip and Bartholomew came from the same hometown. Maybe they would have gone back there and started their own little Jesus church. You being the only one with money, you've afforded to build a big building in the middle of it. Didn't intervene, and there wasn't revival. We know as Baptists because every some of those of us who are from small town know from First Corinthians that that was a church closed doors behind closed doors. <laughs> That tradition to the next generation, but never really reach anybody for Christ, never really change the world. Doesn't that describe most churches today? More focused on the past than on the present or the future? If any of those four things would have happened, there would be no Christianity today. The gospel would exist, but none of us would hear it. So Jesus, he had to be strategic in these last moments. He was very intentional about what he did. Chapter 22 of Luke, verse 7 says, Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of that house. The teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. So here's what it means when he says, go prepare the Passover. Remember, Passover was... A huge event in the life of any Israelite. There were only three annual feasts that were considered pilgrimage feasts where any able-bodied Israelite was, was expected to make the pilgrimage to Jerusalem and, and celebrate that holiday. Passover was the biggest. It was sort of like Christmas and July the 4th rolled into one. Christmas because it was a remembrance of, of their deliverance from God, but, but July the 4th because it was also their national birthday. They became a people. They went from slaves to free uh, Passover. And there was a very specific way to celebrate it. Whereas we, in all of our holidays, we we don't have any set traditions. One family eats turkey and dressing. Another family has ham. Another family has steak. Another family goes out to eat. I mean, it's different for us. But there was a very specific way you celebrated Passover. What Peter and Andrew had to do that day was go to the temple and buy an unblemished lamb and have it ritually sacrificed, and then they had to find someone to roast it for them. It had to be roasted in exactly the right way so that none of its bones were broken. They needed bitter herbs. They needed needed wine and cups and all the things that went with it. They needed unleavened bread. The unleavened bread uh, symbolized when the Israelites had to leave Egypt in such a hurry that they didn't have time to let their bread rise. And because this is a meal and they wanted to actually eat a meal, they probably bought side dishes too, things like beans and and lentils and hummus. And they had to prepare all of this. So this was a full day's work. But why why is there this cloak and dagger sort of thing where Jesus doesn't tell them where it's going to be, but tells tells them to find this guy carrying water? Remember, water carrying was considered woman's work. So a man carrying a jar of water would have stood out. They would have found him easy to find. This indicates Jesus had prearranged this. So why? Why didn't he just say, oh, well, just go down to 600 North Main and there's your house and go on in and I'll be there. Well, because Judas was there. And Judas had only recently made an arrangement with the high priests that I will take you to where he is so you can arrest him. Judas had those 30 pieces of silver with him already, I'm sure. Jesus knew If Judas knows where we're going to have this, then they'll arrest me before I even get to the upper room. And I'm ready to die. I'm I'm ready and willing to be arrested and tortured and and killed. But I need to have the supper with my disciples first. And you'll see why as we move along through the story. Verse 14 says, When the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So put yourself inside that little upper room and get out of your mind this image that we see from the famous painting by Leonardo da Vinci. It's a beautiful painting. It's a classic, but that's not what it looked like. Israelites in those days didn't eat around big wooden tables and sit on high chairs. They ate on the floor. There's a picture that we have, uh, not of the actual event, but from the movie, The Passion of the Christ. They're sitting on the floor. There, There are cushions under them, perhaps, but they have a low table, And they're around the table, not all facing the same direction, right? Keep in mind also that Jesus took time to take his outer garment off and wrap a towel around his waist and wash the feet of all 12 of those present, including Judas. Keep in mind also that John tells us he had a very long farewell discourse in the course of this meal, where he told them all about what he was what he had planned to do for them and what was coming next, including the coming of the Holy Spirit, and prayed that great high priestly prayer over them in John chapter 17. The Passover meal had a very specific script that had to be followed. There were questions from the youngest in the family to the father. And the father would answer, and in the course of those questions, he would retell the story of how on that night of all nights, Back in Egypt, when the Israelites were still slaves, the death angel came and slew the firstborn of every household aside from those whose whose homes were covered by the blood of an unblemished lamb. That example of God's grace was what they were celebrating. And somewhere along the way, Jesus deviated from the script. He went off script and they would have seen it immediately. They would have thought, hey, I've been celebrating Passover my whole life. This has never happened before. Jesus took that bread and he took that wine and he said, this is my body. This is my blood. Now, for centuries, Christians have debated about whether he was being literal there. Does the, does the cup and the, and the bread magically change into the real physical body and blood of Jesus or not? I will say this. If that's the case, the disciples certainly didn't think so. Remember in the story in Acts chapter 10 when Peter is told by God, hey, kill these animals and eat them in a vision. And Peter says, I can't do it, Lord. They are unclean. Here's a guy who believes in God, who wants to follow God, and yet he refuses an order from God Almighty because he refuses to eat something he knows is unclean. If the disciples had thought that the bread and the wine were the literal body and blood of Jesus, they would have run out of the room before eating and drinking. So what did Jesus mean? I believe it was long after the Holy Spirit had already come and they had had time to study and review what they'd heard and said, That they finally understood what this whole thing was about. What is it about for us today? Three things. Number one, He has given us a new family. The Lord's Supper is about you being welcomed into a new family, a family that is made up of people you're not blood-related to. A family that is made up of people you weren't born into. It's something different. It's something new. Remember, the Passover meal was eaten with your family. That's traditionally the way it was supposed to be. You were supposed to do it with the members of your own household. The youngest in the family would ask the father the questions and he would give the answers. But Jesus and his disciples weren't with their families. They hadn't been with their families for quite some time. Don't you know this? For Jesus' disciples, this had to have called to mind the families they'd left behind. I bet it made them miss those families. If you're Peter, Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, any of those disciples, you've probably got a wife and kids at home. You've probably got in-laws who, who are shaking their heads and saying, you know, I, I thought he was an okay guy back when he was providing for my daughter and my grandkids, but now he's off running after this this unemployed, homeless teacher who claims to be Messiah that all the religious leaders consider a heretic, I don't know what to think anymore. And you're sitting there, you're thinking, I miss, I miss my family, I miss my kids, I miss my wife. I don't really miss my in-laws, but they cook okay. You know, I, I, I don't know what I'm doing here. They also had to have remembered that time that Jesus said, whoever does the will of my Father, he is my brother, my sister, my mother. Jesus was saying, I'm creating a new kind of family, an eternal family. He's not writing off the, the blood family we've been given. I mean, the scriptures testify over and over again how important it is to honor your father and mother, for a husband to love his wife as Christ loved the church, for the wife to respect her husband, and for kids to look up to their parents and parents to raise their children in love and and beauty. All of that is true. And if you follow Jesus with all your heart, you will become a better, more devoted member of your family. But what Jesus was saying was, this is something different than blood. This is something new. This is something that, that matters equally or if not more. And so what good news is this? For people who the word family brings them more pain than joy, more sorrow than comfort. The abused child, the orphan, the divorced person, the unhappily single person, the unhappily married person. They have to look at this and say, Someday, someday I will have this perfect family. Right now I'm in it, but it's not perfect yet. Someday, someday I will be a part of a perfect family. That's good news, but it's also a great responsibility a responsibility that we have to take seriously. You know that some Christian traditions call what we're about to do holy communion, and there's a reason for it. 1 Corinthians 10, 16 says that whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup, we are communing in the Lord's blood. We're sharing in Christ's blood, that word communing. In In other words, we're all equal in the eyes of God. This is what brings us together. This is what we have in common. And no matter whether you are a self-made millionaire or you inherited a fortune or you're someone who's lost everything or you're someone who never had anything, you are equal in the blood of Christ. And whether you are someone who has a perfect spotless reputation in the community or you're the town tramp or the village idiot, anywhere in between, you are equal in the blood of Christ. And the most pious and sweet and gentle elderly Christian woman you can think of has more in common with a convicted killer on death row who has accepted Jesus as his Savior than she does with any of the little old ladies she plays bridge with. Because they've both been ransomed by the blood of Christ. They're brother and sister. One in Him. And that's why there's only one way you can get the Lord's Supper wrong. You read in 1 Corinthians 11, that's our tutorial on what it is to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And notice it doesn't say how often you should do it. It doesn't say that it has to be real wine or that grape juice is okay. It doesn't say that it has to be passed out by deacons or that a preacher has to administer it. What it does say though is, you better take it in a worthy manner. Do not take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. And when you read chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, you see what he's talking about is the unity of God's family. He's saying if you're if you're guilty of causing division within the family of God, then don't take the Lord's Supper. If you've hurt someone and refused to apologize or if they've hurt you and you've refused to forgive, then when that supper comes before you, pass it by, don't take it. If you're too stubborn to repent, if you're too stubborn to go to that person and say, "Let's make things right for the sake of Jesus himself," then don't take it. Don't make a mockery of the body and blood of Jesus that has brought you a new family, a family where color doesn't matter and money doesn't matter and background doesn't matter and nothing matters except the blood of Jesus that has made us one. The second thing they got from this supper and that we do as well is He's given us a new hope. We have something to look forward to that we didn't before. Twice in the passage we read, Jesus mentions the kingdom of God. He says, this is the last time I will eat this feast with you before the kingdom. And and this is the last time I'll drink wine with you until the kingdom of God comes. What he's saying is, if you like this meal that Peter and John have worked so hard to prepare for you today, just wait till you see the meal that I'm preparing for you someday. Over and over again, Jesus used this same terminology when he talked about the world to come, the future. He said, it's going to be like a wedding feast. John 21, there at the end of the Bible, John looks at, he envisions the, the coming together of God and his people at the end. What heaven looks like to John is a bride coming down from heaven, radiantly dressed for her husband. That's us. Jesus said, it's going to be like a wedding feast. It's going to be like nothing you've ever experienced on earth. Not just one meal, but that's, that's a, an image of what the whole Eternity is for us. It's one unending celebration. And the best way, I I think, to picture it is this. Think about about this little wafer we're going to eat in just a moment, right? You don't have to lie. It tastes like styrofoam. It really does. Now, imagine you live in a world where that's the only bread that exists. Atkins diet would be really easy in that world, wouldn't it? Imagine that's the only bread you've ever tasted all your life. And then one day somebody hands you a dinner roll from Texas Roadhouse. Your mind goes. See, I think that when we step foot on the new earth where Jesus is king for the first time, we won't be there long before we realize the very best day I experienced on planet earth was like this styrofoam wafer compared to the feast that I'm enjoying now that's what we have to look forward to. There is a new hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And then there is also, third of all, a new covenant. And this is the main thing Jesus wanted them to get. He took that cup and he said, this, is, this wine is the new covenant in my blood. And when he said that, that's a word that is very meaningful to Israelites like these disciples. We as Christians don't really focus on the covenants of scripture, but we should. But for the Israelites, it was a huge word. It would have brought to mind two images from the Old Testament. One from Exodus, 30, Exodus 24 of Moses taking the blood of the sacrifice and sprinkling, on, sprinkling it on those former slaves and saying, now you are God's chosen people. You have a covenant with him and no one else does. And that means that God is going to bless you and make you his priests to the whole world so that the whole world will see, look at what I can do and be drawn to him. And then the second image is from Jeremiah 31. The old prophet Jeremiah, one of that small remnant of Israelites left after the Babylonian invasion. And he's writing to the rest of Israel who's in captivity. They've lost everything, lost their land, lost their home, lost everything. And he's writing to them to say, you lost it because you didn't follow the covenant, but don't worry, God has a new covenant in mind. And someday there will be a covenant between God and his people where you won't have to memorize the laws because the laws will be written on your heart through the Holy Spirit. And you won't need to be perfect because he will forgive you and he will be your God. And Jesus is saying to his disciples, that's me. That first covenant, that blood that was sprinkled on your forefathers, that forgave you temporarily. My blood will forgive you forever. That new covenant that Jeremiah talked about, that will be sealed in my own blood. My own blood will will pay the price for your sins and you will have forgiveness and you will be delivered into a relationship with God that will never end. You will be his in a covenant that cannot be broken no matter how badly you mess up. So when Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, He's not saying, hey, I'm worried that you're going to forget me, so do this once in a while to remember who I was. Jesus knew that was impossible. No one could forget Jesus. What he's saying is, do this to remember what I've done for you. Do this to remember that the whole Passover event was pointing to me. Do this to remember that my death, which you're going to experience tomorrow as the greatest tragedy you've ever been through, will turn out to be the greatest victory you've ever won. Do this to remember that by my, by my stripes you're healed. By my death you live. The power of sin is overcome. It is written, it is done. We just sang it earlier. Hallelujah for the cross. Isn't it interesting that those early Christians took the cross as their symbol? You would think the cross would be the most hateful thing they could possibly imagine because it's, it's what humiliated and killed their Savior, but instead they saw it as a sign of victory because of this, because of what Jesus told them that night, because they understood then Later on, they looked back and understood, ah, this was the plan all along. And that's why to this day, we still eat the bread and drink the cup. No matter what church you go to, no matter what language they speak in, no matter whether they sit and and sing out of a hymnal or stand and raise their hands, no matter whether they speak in tongues or don't speak in tongues or or whatever their practices are, whatever their doctrinal differences, what brings us all together is the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And that's why we continue to do this over and over again. I want to just close with this. Jesus, in verse 15, said, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you. And that's an interesting phrase. In the Greek, it's literally, I have desired with great desire. And that's the way in the ancient world you would emphasize something. You'd say it twice. Twice. Why was Jesus so excited about this? Why was he just bursting with excitement to have this Lord's Supper with his disciples? You know, I, I have a confession to make. I'm not a very good gift giver. You know, in that, in that test of the love languages, gift giving is one of the lowest for me. I, I'm just not good at it. Carrie and I don't even exchange Valentine's Day gifts. We, we decided this early in our relationship, I think in part because we were poor, but also because she realized, you know, <laughs> I'm going to help this guy out. You know, he just doesn't do well. Uh, So so I I have this experience when when I give gifts, they'll open it. The person opens it and they always say the same thing. They always say, oh, wow. And they extend it really long because that's him thinking, okay, what am I going to say about this? What was he thinking? And honestly, I I was basically taking a three-point shot from 10 feet outside the line with the shot clock running down and just hoping it hit, you know? But every once in a while, every once in a while, I nail it. Every once in a while, I get a slam dunk and I know it. I know it's going to be perfect. And in those instances, I'm like a kid. I, I can't wait until the day comes. I'm like, Carrie, I know your birthday's next week, but you want to re- open one present now? Can't we open one present now? Why am I so excited? Because, because I love this person and I want them to know they're loved. I want them to experience this great thing that I've, I've gotten for them. Jesus was excited that night. Why? Because he'd been waiting all that time for them to see, this is how much I love you. I've been trying to tell you, but now you're finally going to see. Now you're going to see the depths to which I will go, the heights to which I will climb, that there's nothing in the world I won't do. I I want you to see how much your life is going to change and how the world is going to change because of what happens in the next 24 hours. Now, was Jesus dreading it too? Yeah, we see that in the Garden of Gethsemane. He knew what he was facing, and yet there was joy and excitement in his heart because of what his pain was going to produce. And so that brings us back to that question of how do we love our neighbors? And along with everything else we've said, we just need to remember. Remember what Christ has done for us. And when you're feeling lazy and when you're feeling selfish and when you think to yourself, oh, I've done enough, Remember the cross. Remember the body. Remember the blood. Remember what He did for you with joy in His heart. And the more time you spend in His presence, just like anybody with any kind of skill, when you spend time with them, you start to learn from them. The more time you spend in His presence, the more you remember what He did for you. And experience that love, the more you will learn to love others. And the more you become like Him.